Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I think about belonging as an experience. We all know and have experiences of going to a place where we knew we didn't belong. And we probably felt it in our bodies. We probably felt it in our emotions. And we probably sensed it in our thoughts. We probably made haste and left that place that we knew we didn't belong for whatever, for, for whatever reason. Hey, it's David, and you're listening to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul, your source for practical leadership inspiration, tools, and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without sacrificing your humanity or your mind in the process. Hey, welcome, and thank you for making Leadership Without Losing Your Soul one of the top leadership podcasts in the world. So appreciate you listening and sharing everything you're learning with the leaders, the managers, your colleagues in your life, and leave those reviews. Those reviews help other people to find the show too. Let's see if we can't crack the top 10. All right, our guest today is DDS Dobson Smith, who is a licensed therapist, author, executive coach, speaker on leadership and growth, all in service of helping others grow and become who they are. They're the founder and CEO of Soul Trained, an executive coaching and leadership growth consultancy. And their new book is, You Can Be Yourself Here, Your Pocket Guide to Creating Inclusive Workplaces by Using the Psychology of Belonging. DDS, welcome to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. Thank you, David. It's lovely to be here. Well, I'm so glad you're here, and I'm looking forward to talking about your book and you know how we can help other people and ourselves to all be yourself at work. Right. Part of the essence of human-centered leadership and, and leadership without losing your soul. Before we dive into all of that, I'd like to ask you to take us back, however far you'd like to take us, and if you can recall your earliest memory of yourself as a leader. Goodness me. Yeah, I, I think... Um... I don't know if this is the earliest memory, but this is the, the one that has sprung to mind when you asked me that question. I used to, way back in the day, I was a, I was a graduate management trainee at a British retailer called Marks and & Spencer. And I had joined what was then known as personnel management versus HR management, as it's called, people management, as it's called today. And I was working in a store in the UK um, as an assistant, a personnel assistant management trainee. And my job, part of my job was to manage a supervisor. Um, and the supervisor's name was Diane. And Diane had been um, a personnel supervisor with Marks and Spencer uh, longer than I had been alive. Mm. And I was like, how am I supposed to manage this amazing woman who, <laughs> who could run circles around me? And, and I was having a moment of crisis, um, confidence of crisis with my manager, a woman called Simone. Um, and she said to me, DDS, it, it's, it's not your job to tell her what to do. You don't need to know 
what she does. Your job is to help her get her job done. Your job is to help her remove obstacles. Your job is to have her back. Your job is to believe in her. That's what it means to be a leader. And and I had never heard that. I mean, I what was I? I was 24 at the time. I had never heard anyone really talk about the role of the manager as being someone who is there to make, to create the conditions for their people to be successful, you know, not the other way around kind of thing. And, um, and I think that's my earliest memory. I think that's the, that's the moment that I think really, it was the difference that made the difference for me in terms of how my career has developed. Wow. What a gift Simone gave you uh-huh. at a young age. Yes. Yeah. She was an incredible manager. And I think, you know, what, what she did for me still ripples today, you know, it still does. And I'm, I'm 48 today. So, you know, it was half of my lifetime ago. Um, and I'm still grateful and indebted to her. Um, you know, I think one of the things that Simone did, um, which left the biggest impression on me was that she, she believed in me sometimes more than I believed in myself. Yeah. One of those transformative leadership behaviors that Indeed. all of us can tap into. Can our belief in our people become their belief in themselves? Indeed. Indeed. And, you know, from a psychological point of view, that's, I mean, in fact, I, I talk about that a little bit in the book, but the, the idea that we can internalize somebody else's belief or love for us and create that as our own is a really important part of our own growth. It's a really important part of human growth, human lifespan development. But, you know, that applies in the workplace just as it must, much as it does in childhood, you know? Absolutely. That's what we're talking about. Human-centered leadership, leadership of human beings. So mm-hmm. of course it applies. Well, and that's a good segue to, to get into the book. So the title of your book is You Can Be Yourself Here, Your Pocket Guide to Creating Inclusive Workplaces by Using the Psychology of Belonging. Yes. So I'd like to maybe start by just defining terms a little bit and start with the psychology of belonging since it's, you know, it's in the subtitle. If you could help walk us through, what do you mean by the psychology of belonging? Well, I I think about belonging as an experience. You know, when you, we all know and have experiences of going to a place where we knew we didn't belong. And we probably felt it in our bodies. We probably felt it in our emotions. And we probably sensed it in our thoughts and you know we we probably made haste and left that place that we knew we didn't belong for whatever for for whatever reason and conversely we also have had the experience i would imagine of of knowing of of turning up somewhere and and thinking oh my goodness me these are my people this is my place i am i belong here and again that will have been felt at a somatic level at a cognitive level and at an affective level um, and so that when I, when I talk about the psychology um, of belonging, so I, first of all, I mean the, the experience of belonging. And second of all, I mean what goes into creating the experience of psychological safety such that we when we do show up, we, we experience that psychological safety and we feel like we belong somewhere. 
you know, as you're as you're talking, I'm thinking about an experience. You said we've all had those experiences, and I had two immediately come to mind. One time, I was in another part of the world, and uh, with people who don't look like I do, and mm-hmm. I walked by a uh, one of those like plate glass windows, and it was dark, mm-hmm. so it was reflective, and I caught a glimpse of my own reflection, and it was shocking. Yeah, and it was shocking to me because I didn't look like anybody that I had been looking at for the last week. Yes. And it was weird how that cognitively like, whoa, I am different. I'm weird yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, out of place here. Yeah. And and then all that came with that, all the, the physical, the emotional things that you were describing. And and of course, being I am a straight white male, so I'm part and living in the US. So I'm part of the dominant culture that that's yep. it's easy to belong if you're me in that kind of a, yes. a setting. Then there was a time I attended a professional association meeting for I was looking to to potentially get involved in the line of work. And within 10 minutes had that resonance that you're describing of, holy cow, yes, I belong here. And yeah. all that upwelling of energy. Yes. yes. Yeah, exactly that. I mean, I this is why it's so important to create workplaces where we feel like we can belong, that we can be ourselves because so many of us that that don't belong to the, the you know, the dominant social group uh, we go into the workplace and there are seen and unseen forces at work that are um pressuring us to um to fit into that dominant group and as a result of those pressures we can often dumb down cover up hide suppress aspects of our behavior, personality, identity, background, such that we will be deemed acceptable by the others and therefore included. Um, and that that suppression, that denial, that covering takes an, a, a, a significant amount of psychic energy to be able to do. And um, and so the, the, the theory is, and this is what I talk about in the book, that if we create spaces where people don't need to do that, where people don't need to cover, code switch, uh, dumb down, suppress, then the energy that would otherwise be taken up doing that, that, that psychological act of um, pretending to be someone else is freed up. And that energy, it, you talk about that welling up, that energy that becomes available to us is, is vast and is then able to be directed into our work, our relationships, innovation, creativity, productivity, all of the things that, you know, organizations say they want their people to do is actually quite simple, not necessarily easy, but quite simple to get to. Such a profound opportunity. And at the same time, and I, I underlined this in your book as I was going through it, because you, you, you say something very similar in the book, calling it out that, that when human beings feel like they belong somewhere, the psychological resources that would otherwise be taken up trying to bend themselves out of shape to fit in, that's all liberated to focus on what's important, their performance, their work, their relationships. And so, and the note I wrote to myself there is that that is simultaneously profound, it's true, and it may be hard for many people to understand. Yeah. Which is 
you know, sad and necessary that we have that conversation. And when I say it's hard, I think for some people to understand is if they haven't had that level of experience. There's a, there's a very, there's another simple way to think about this. And we hear this in the narrative, in the professional narrative a lot. I, I especially do in my executive coaching practice, but also with my patients my in my psychotherapy practice. And, and this doesn't just apply to people who have identities that, that don't come from the dominant social group. When we hear people talk about the work me and the personal me, and, and all that points to this psychological division or splitting, as it's known, of what is it that shows up at work that doesn't show up at home or what is it that shows up at home that doesn't show up at work that still requires management internal management it still requires um moment by moment choices when you walk into you know when you click um you know enter the zoom room or as people start to go back to work when they walk into a, a meeting space and they ask themselves what can i say about my weekend what can't I say about my weekend? When a, when a parent needs to leave work at four o'clock or click off Zoom for the day, are they are they feeling comfortable saying they've got to go and pick their kids up or not? Or the person that doesn't drink, that doesn't want to go to a social engagement, do they feel okay saying that? And and so th- there's all it, it's happening to all of us. Mm-hmm. So many different aspects that affect that belonging. And it, it strikes me that tapping into the importance of it, obviously there's the business case. You just covered all of that, of, of all of the energy and, and the innovation and the creativity, everything that is released towards the work when we're not having to invest that energy. And the human side, obviously even more important because that's at the core of everything. It takes empathy, I think, for us even though we have our own familiarity with these things, each of us has experienced in some fashion what you're describing. And yet, I, I think it does take up empathy. You, you break down empathy and, mm. uh, you know, it's one of those words that, that we can throw around. And yet, I appreciated that you, you unpack empathy for us, that there's four different aspects or dimensions of empathy and uh, four different abilities. And I wonder if you might walk us through what are we talking about when we're talking about empathy? How, what does it look like? What does it mean to have empathy for other human beings? Because I think if we're going to really create these kinds of teams and departments and organizations, this is fundamental to it all. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's, I absolutely don't take credit for anything to do with empathy. You know, thank goodness for Dr. Brené Brown and how she brought empathy and vulnerability Mm -hmm. and, and kind of mainlined it for everyone and and it, and it became something that we now talk about because of her work Absolutely. so thank you Brené I think what's really really important about empathy is that it is a learnable skill mm. right it, it's not it's not a personality trait it is a learnable skill and there are some there are some things that we can do that are that are really simple that will demonstrate empathy the first one is to you know to meet people where they're at I always say that it's it's way easier if you go to somebody else's bus stop for them to get on your bus than it is for you to call them over to your bus stop. Um, and so what I mean what I mean by that is 
you know, when, when we are able as a human being to meet another human being and see them and hear them where they're at without trying to change, without trying to fix or heal or, or mend them, then there is so much um, personal empowerment in that for the individual. There's another aspect to this, which is giving people the benefit of the doubt. And so often I like to remind a lot of my clients, you know, when you're in the space of having an opinion that is different to somebody else's, it's useful to remember that you both might be wrong because it's opinion, right? It's not fact. And so when there is doubt over the quote unquote truth, then it's often really useful just to give the benefit of that doubt. Right. And just to, and just to, you know, and to have, to be able to um, meet the person um, where they're at. And then the other one is, this is such a valuable skill is to assume positive intent. Mm -hmm. And, And that doesn't mean that we just let people get away with crap. Um, it doesn't mean we don't hold people to account. Um, it, it just means that we hold um, a belief that people didn't get up in the morning. People didn't get up in the morning and come to work to deliberately mess things up or to upset you or to, you know, make that mistake. Um, and and when we can, when we come from a place of assuming that they were doing the very best that they could with the resources they, that they have available to them. Then when you combine assuming positive intent, giving the benefit of the doubt and meeting people where they're at, then, then what you get is a very, very co-creational space between you and the other person. Um, and you, and you start to create this uh, experience of psychological safety, which is, uh, you know, we experience psychological safety when we realize that it's not expensive to be ourselves. Uh, and, and so when we have that and, and remember, and it's really easy to see that none of this costs a penny, not, not a single, not a single penny, but the ROI is insane. I love that, that definition you just gave Psych- I have not heard that one before. Psychological safety is when it isn't expensive to be ourselves. Right. We're not paying that psychic cost or sometimes very real life costs. Physical, emotional, and and psychological, yeah. To be ourselves. Okay, so as we're we're talking about this space, again, just to help define terms, because I think you've got some very succinct, clear ways of saying this. Uh, And you've described what belonging is, that experience that we have. Let's, because we always hear these almost in the same breath, diversity, inclusion, belonging, like help delineate these for us. Yeah. So um, diversity for me um, is a fact. Um, it, it, It either is or isn't. You either do or do not have a diverse organization or team. And um, there's a there's a very simple litmus test. When you look around, do you see people that look like you? And do you see people who don't look like you? Or who, do you see people who are like you or who aren't like you? It doesn't always have to be about, obviously, physical presentation. And if the answer is yes to both of those, those questions, the chances are you have diversity. Now, diversity alone is not enough, right? It's not enough just to check the box that you've hired diversity, that you retain diversity, because the the benefits 
which are documented aplenty by many reputable sources of, of, you know, the commercial and emotional benefits of having a diverse workforce. Those benefits will not be realized without the behavior of inclusion. And so what I mean by the behavior of inclusion is, is the behavior of an organization is the, the processes, the policies, and the platforms that an organization deploys in its, in its going aboutness of being an organization. Are they inclusive? Yeah, um, and then there's, there's a, the number one determinant of um, whether you will have a, a climate of inclusion or not is the behavior of your leaders or your, the behavior of the people um, in positions of management. And I've long said that the climate of any organization will be shaped by the worst behavior you're willing to tolerate in a leader. Mm-hmm. And so if your if you're leaders, if the, the people in, in positions of, of power are not behaving in inclusive ways, then whatever you have done with diversity will be out the door. And so... We have diversity as a fact, we have inclusion as a behavior, and we have belonging as an experience. Now, what this doesn't cover is the idea of equity. And I encourage leaders to think equitably, not equally. And thinking equally is is about treating everybody the same, which seems like a really great thing to do, right, on the surface. But there's a problem with treating everybody the same because it invisibilizes the experience of those people that um, come from historically excluded groups. So treating people equitably recognizes that for some people, the cards are automatically stacked against them. And for some people, the, the cards are automatically stacked towards them. And equitable practices recognize that. All right. So there's your delineation diversity, inclusion, equity versus equally and belonging. So diversity is a fact, inclusion, behavior, belonging is the experience produced when we have good practices around. Okay. So, and we've talked about the business case. We've talked about the energy that's, that's released and so on. So if it's okay with you, I want to dive into some of the the tougher questions that I Uh hear from some, from our (laughs) leaders. I know that you hear some of these too. And oh, there's no uh oh here because I know you have some good answers for us. And I'm looking forward to, to hearing these. Is so you know I have compassion for the leader, and, and I know that you've heard this from them. Sometimes you're like, yes, I recognize and the elements of our human experience, and I do want that. And when I ask leaders, like when you talk about losing your soul, where does that most often happen? And they'll say, oh, I can tell you, it's if we don't ship this product by next Friday, we're not going to have profit to keep all these human beings employed here. And that's when I start to drop out of my best self, my best behavior so far. So I'm curious from your perspective about the intersection between meaningful uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, culture, uh, all of those elements and those kinds of business realities that everyone faces and some of your best practices around that intersection. Mm. Well, I think it's it's important to recognize that we do exist in a in a in a capitalist culture and capitalism encourages us uh, to produce and consume produce and consume produce and consume and if we're not producing or consuming then we're failing and if we're failing we feel miserable so 
it, it is it is no wonder that we hear people say if i if i don't get this out and if i don't make the target and if i don't make the sale then you know and if i don't get the profit then then these people are going to lose their jobs and i'm definitely not the first person to say this but i know through my own experience and of being you know my own 25 year long career in in corporate america and corporate europe and corporate asia I, I know that if, if you focus on the happiness and the engagement of your people, then they will drive your profit for you, right? Like they, they, they will create an environment because this is how human beings work in a capitalist economy, if you put them first, and I don't necessarily mean, I'm not sitting here, you know, espousing that you you don't care about the bottom line and you don't care, like, I'm not saying that at all, but I am saying that if you care equally about the bottom line and about the people who are driving that bottom line, then you will have to worry less about the bottom line and you'll have more money available and more profit available to drive into the experience that your people have of being at work, whether that means being able to offer increasingly family-friendly policies and, and benefits and perks or improving the working environment, whatever it is. But if you, if you, if you place equal attention um, on both these, these, these important um, levers that's what I believe will, will create both a highly successful organization that is full of people that are engaged um, and happy to be there. And as you're talking, it even is reminding me of the advice that Simone gave you early on, which, and it's that reframing of our job and our responsibility, that our responsibility is in support of our people to achieve the the ends that we're trying to achieve yeah. as a team. Yeah. It's not that I am the driver and the in all total, some kind of total control and all, all that's an illusion anyway, if we put ourselves there, but right. that it's that reframing of yes. what we're actually there to do. Yeah. I, and again, something that I, that I do a lot when I'm running, you know, leadership growth experiences with executive teams or, or coaching, individual executives, CEOs, founders, the whole thing. I, I like to remind people or I, I like to kind of reposition um, the kind of hierarchy. And I, and I talk to people about supporting lines instead of reporting lines. And I, and I also like to remind people that it is the, the manager's job, whatever level you're at in the organization, to make your team look good, not the other way around. You know, your your people don't work for you. They work for themselves. But you're here to help them be better at that. And it's as, sim it's as simple as that. Yes, it is. All right. We are talking with DDS Dobson-Smith, author of You Can Be Yourself Here, Your Pocket Guide to Creating Inclusive Workplaces by Using the Psychology of Belonging. And so many practical suggestions already. Longtime listeners of our show know that, you know, we've had the conversations around leadership always begins by leading yourself. And DDS, I know that you have suggestions on, on how we can start with ourselves in terms of becoming aware of and undoing uh, 
yes. some of the biases or conditioning or things that affect our leadership uh, and, and maybe keep us from that full human-centered leadership that we're striving for. Yeah. This is going to sound... Well, I don't know how this is going to sound. I, I hope well, lay it on us. Let's find out. Yeah, I hope it sounds ingenious, <laughs> but it, it's very, very simple. To start with yourself, take a look at your social feeds. If you're an Instagram user or a Facebook user or a TikTok user or even LinkedIn, who are you following on those platforms? Are they people who have the same lifestyle as you, the same background as you, the same interests as you, the same beliefs as you? I would wager that they likely, most if not all, are. Start there. Start following people who are not like you. Start following people who will challenge your perspective, who will bring about education and information for you. Because that is one of the quickest ways to become more aware of your biases and your, your own social conditioning. It's really simple. What do we do when we're on the toilet these days? We're on our phone and we're probably scrolling through our social feeds. Or if we're on the couch in the evening and, you know, we're chilling out in front of Netflix and, you know, I mean, I know, I know what happens for me when I'm watching. So I love Survivor, by the way. So when I'm watching Survivor and if it all gets a little bit too tense, I'll pick up my phone and like just ignore what's going on on the screen. And I'll just sc start scrolling through um, through Instagram. And, and this is feeding us messages all the time, all the time, just like advertising does, just like, you know, so our social conditioning as we've grown up in this kind of in the patriarchy has conditioned us as to what is good and what is not good, what is favored and what is unfavored. We can reprogram ourselves with using our own social feeds. And that's a really, really simple and easy, no cost place to start. And then as you're doing something like that of changing what you're seeing and who you're seeing and, and what you're hearing frequently, and it starts to produce some of that, I don't know what we're going to call that, that huh? Yes. <laughs> that in discord, incoherence, I don't know what the, the, the proper- Call it cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance. That's a, that's a, sounds like a nice fancy term for it, but yeah, it's that, <laughs> that's, it's jarring. It can be mentally jarring. Yes. Going, what are they talking? I don't get it. What is the next step as we start to experience some of those things? Or we have people in our, our workplace or in our teams and, and we're having those experiences hopefully yep. there as well. What are some of the next steps we can take? So I, I think it's really important to remember that it is not the job of a person who comes from um, a, a community or has an identity from a, from a community that is historically excluded to teach you, us, about their experience. We have Google for that, right? So I want to discourage anyone from walking up to the next, the, 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 the next queer person that they know and asking them about, you know, the experience of a trans person or like just, you know, or 
it's just not it's just not okay to do it particularly if you don't know that person and particularly if you haven't sought consent from that person that they are willing to participate in that conversation so number 1 as you start to see experience those that cognitive dissonance or those those light bulb moments go to google or and in the back of the the back of my book i've got a list and list and list of resources that people can access like ted talks and articles and books and podcasts the whole thing so i would say that's 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 the first thing the second thing is be prepared to be wrong right and i think so many so many people are scared understandably of treading on someone's toes, of saying the wrong thing, of using the wrong language, of using outdated language, um, that they that they don't even have that they don't enter into a conversation. Um, and so, when we are learning, we're gonna be wrong, and we just got to get comfortable with being wrong. And when we do say something that is inappropriate or harmful to another person and they flag it to us, we just say, thank you for bringing that to my attention. I, I didn't realize that that was harmful. I'm, I, I apologize and take accountability for my impact. And then you move on. There is so many, there's a tendency to, you know, to go into histrionics and to cry and to think you're a bad person because you make a mistake and that's flagellation yeah oh exactly exactly david and just don't do that but just be prepared to to be wrong um, and be prepared to take accountability for any harmful behavior say sorry move on and learn from your mistake yeah i'm thinking about a, a friend of mine who uh has a child who was uh born male and I don't know, around age 15, 16, uh, said, I'd like to change my pronouns and give me she, her, and adjusted their name from the masculine version to a more feminine version. I had known this person for 15 years with a particular pronoun. Yep. It became challenging in those first several interactions. I got it right about half the time. And then would just get in the flow of conversation and revert back to and apologize and said, I'm sorry. And she said, no problem. You're trying. Yeah. You know, and I so appreciated that that element of what you're talking about of to be prepared to be wrong. It, you're going to be. It's OK. It's yeah. it's, it's t- are you trying? Are you moving forward? Are you taking responsibility and being as responsive and uh, aware of your effect on other people as you can be. Exactly. All right. So some good suggestions there as a leader, how you can start developing, being coming aware of your own biases, your own conditioning, and some of those next steps to take as you start to have some of that cognitive dissonance. So let's move to this idea that you talk about uh, in your book, DDS, of culture fit versus culture ad. Mm-hmm. There has been uh, this this concept of as we're hiring, as we're adding team members to our organizations, of hiring for fit in our culture, and and quite honestly, I have been a proponent of it in in the mm-hmm. past. I certainly have talked about that, finding people who you know have that the the culture, the organization, and and so on, and in their DNA. 
And you have a different way of looking at it, which is let's not go for culture fit. Let's go for culture add. What are you going to yep. add to the culture? Yeah. Help unpack that for us. And why is that such an important thing to be looking at? Yeah, well, when, when you start to when you start to have a recruitment process that, it you know, and a, a great recruitment process will include a check for the the hard skills, knowledge, experience, and a check for the more behavioral um, aspects of the individual. And so knowing that they, that, that they are able to do the job and that they are able to do it in a way that is in alignment with the company's mission, right? And so that is part of, um, that's part of belonging. But the problem, so the problem becomes when this, you know, the behavioral, cultural side of the interview process becomes about, will this person fit here? Um, will this person fit with everybody else here? Will this person fit with the culture? And when we do that, what we're creating is homogeneity, right? We're just creating a bunch, of, we're just building out an organization of similar people. What I advocate for instead is being able for an organization to be able to very clearly articulate what is the culture here? How do we do what we do? What's it like to work here? And being able to share that with, an, with a candidate and then ask them, how will you add to that? What do you see yourself bringing that will add to what it's like to work here? And so what you're doing is that you're allowing an individual to know for themselves, because quite frankly, no interview process is going to be successful at mind reading the inner world of the individual, right? There is, there is, and I say this to all of my psychotherapy patients as well, you are the world's expert on you. I never will be, and no one else will be apart from you. So what we've got to do in our recruitment process is give the, the individual the opportunity to think, will I fit here? Will I enjoy working in this environment? And then ask them what they can add to it, what they will bring that will be special and additional and extra. That's what I mean by culture add versus culture fit. So we want to, we don't want to bleed over into homogeneity and then the stifling of innovation, all those things that, that happen there. So I'm curious, taking this uh, maybe a one step deeper is when, when you think about the elements of, from a, the healthy unifying elements of a team, a culture, an organization, yep. whether you know, ABC Incorporated or XYZ nonprofit, whoever that might be, what are the healthy elements that don't bleed over into homogeneity and stifling innovation. And so that we're, we're in full disclosure, able to tell a candidate or somebody looking to join a team, like, this is how we do our work. This is what's important. And what would you add? So let's focus on that first bucket a little bit further. I, I think you've just said it. I think what, what, what it is, is, is that you're able to clearly articulate a why, a what and a how for the team. Right. So this is why we are a team. This is why we are a business. This is the mission that we're on. Do you feel an alignment, an affinity with that mission? Are you going to enjoy being part of this journey that we're on? Is it going to give you joy? Is it going to bring you purpose? Is it going to bring you meaning? And then this is what we do in order to deliver that mission. 
And do you have the skills? Do you have the ability? Can you grow into those skills? Can we give you the skills? How do we help you do what you do? And do you have a natural affinity for what, what we're doing? And then this is how it is. This is how it is to work here. And that's the whole piece around the culture ad versus the culture fit. It's, 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 it's really simple. Very simple. If you've done the work, if you haven't done the work to <laughs> identify and clarify your why, your why yeah. and your how, well, there's some work you need to do before right. you're going to be able to do that in a meaningful right. way. And, you know, thank you, Simon Sinek, for that model. You know, um, the, you know, you start with why and people buy that people don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. So that is some work. Right. And, and, and yeah. And if you, if you haven't articulated the why of the organization or the why of the team, well, then you have a beautiful opportunity to, to collaborate with your team members on that. So you co-create that why together. And my goodness, when people have their thumbprints on that sort of stuff, you, I mean, it's, it's, I've got, a, I just got goosebumps just even thinking about it. Like it's just, it's an environment where people like, it will just sizzle. It would be amazing. And you pair that with a great culture of belonging and that energy and, it's going to be hard to stop you. It's well, it's going to be hard to stop you, and it, and you and you're going to be one of the most enviable workplaces on the earth. Absolutely. All right, so we're going to dive into a couple more practical elements of this conversation. But first, DDS, where do we find you? Where can we connect with you? Follow your work, learn more, uh, and get the book. Yeah, thank you for asking. So feel free to follow me on LinkedIn, DDS Dobson Smith. You can also find me uh, my website, www.soultrained.com. Um, there's tons of resources on the website, uh, including blogs and videos and podcasts and the whole thing. If anyone wants to reach out for a conversation, I love talking, as you can probably tell. Um, you can email me at dds at soultrained.com. There you go. So I hope you will take advantage, connect on LinkedIn, get it to the website, get to Soul Trained, and email DDS with your questions or opportunities for conversation. Uh, as you can tell, DDS is an awesome conversationalist. I am looking forward to the next few minutes that we've got of this conversation. And I'm, I'm bummed it's going to have to end when it does. But let's get to these final questions. Yeah. One of the, the uh, getting practical as we think about creating um, these kinds of workplaces and experiences of belonging in our teams is how do we know? Uh, imagine a listener going, yeah, I get this. I want that. I want my people to have an experience. So as a leader, you've got some suggestions about what you should be looking at to determine whether you have a culture of belonging and people are having that experience in your team department or organization. Yes. Two important metrics, which is employee satisfaction or engagement and employee attrition. And so there's a correlation between those two metrics. When one goes up, the other one goes down. And an organization wants an acceptable level of attrition. So determine what your acceptable level of attrition is. And, you know, again, I think we said a bit earlier, but that, again, there's more research out there, like the idea around, um, I think it was Sears that first um, produced the, the research that showed that happy employees drive profitability. So the idea of having an organization where you've got high levels of employee satisfaction, low levels of um, employee attrition, it's likely that you have got this 
climate of, of belonging. Not guaranteed because there are other things going on, but it's likely. The other thing that I, you know, I think is also um, can be interesting for employers to do because, you know, there's a whole industry out there about employee opinion surveys and, you know, different AI bots that can help you read employee like slacks and emails that can, t- you know, give you the sentiment of the organization. I think it can be really, really simple, which is asking your asking your team, do you feel safe here? And and if you if if people feel safe here, then there is likely to I mean there's a there's a there's a correlation between psychological safety and belonging. And so if you ask your team, you know, whether you ask them a simple binary, yes or no, do you feel safe here, or to what extent do you feel safe here across a Likert scale? and then ask for them some commentary to explain their their score, that's going to give you a wealth of information about what needs to change in the organization in order for people to feel safe. And as soon as people start to feel safe, you watch your satisfaction go up and your attrition go down. And so at at an organizational level, getting the data is vital. And then at the level of a team leader or maybe a department leader, uh, there's the individual conversations and the, the sense you get there. And perhaps data too, depending on on what situation you're in. So, okay, so let's take it to the next logical question, which I know some listeners are asking right now is, okay, yes, I do want this. I I have a sense that there is work for us to do. I'm looking around at my team and going, you know, there is some diversity and not as much as I would like. And I got to say, if I'm being totally honest, hmm, maybe not everyone would have a sense of belonging here. And I want that that experience of belonging here. And I want that to be the case. What are some, if we had two or three practical suggestions for leaders to start implementing, taking action on over time to start growing that direction, what would you recommend? <laughs> Number one, read the book. <laughs> because I mean, I, there are tons of practical steps that you can take. Spoiler alert, I think, first of all, look at your recruitment practices, um, look at where you're sourcing, where, where you're advertising roles, where you're sourcing candidates from, um, and are they typically white places? Are they typically straight places? Is the audience that consumes your um, your advertise, your job ads from a particular community and and then take action to change that? And then internally, I always think that it's having having conversations and having KPIs at leadership level about belongingness in the workplace is a really important thing because you can't change what you can't see and you, you can't manage what you don't measure. Um, and so being able to manage and measure it is a really important thing and, and for there to be accountability around inclusion. Um, and accountability really means, you know, is there a standard? Do you have the capability to deliver the standard? Are you having follow-up conversations about delivering to that standard? And are there clear consequences that that happen when the standard is delivered or isn't delivered? Those are two really, really simple things that you can start with. And you said, spoiler alert, I, I would call it a taste. We get a taste. Okay. <laughs> because you're absolutely right. There are so many practical suggestions in the book. Uh, 
Once again, talking with DDS Dobson Smith, author of You Can Be Yourself Here, Your Pocket Guide to Creating Inclusive Workplaces by Using the Psychology of Belonging, creating that experience of belonging for your teams, your folks, and releasing all of the energy that people have to bring when they're not worried about having to not be themselves in some fashion and bending out of shape there. All right, DDS, it is, we have reached the end of our time and I'd like to, to see if you've got one final thought, something we haven't talked about yet. Maybe it's a practical suggestion, maybe it's a, a thought that's coming to mind, but as we're thinking of this, as you're, we're trying to equip leaders to make these differences and be that human-centered leader, what would your final thought, where would you like to leave us today? Um, I would like to leave you with the title of my second book, which is going to be published in September, which is Leadership as a Behavior, Not a Title, uh, Your Pocket Guide to Being a Leader Worth Following. Um, and to, you know, remind people that I, I often that there is a question that, that leaders will ask themselves, which is how, how do I be a great leader? And I say that's the wrong question. The question that you should be asking is how do I become someone worth following? And, and the answer to that question is you be a decent human being and you be a decent human being with increasing amounts of skill and choice. And that is going to be the number one determinant of whether you are able to turn your diversity into an experience of belonging is the behavior of the leaders. Mm, that is powerful. And this has been a powerful conversation. Don't focus on becoming the best leader you can be focus on being a person worth following and you are on your way to being the leader you'd want your boss to be dds thank you so much for being a guest with us today without losing your soul really appreciate it thank you david for having me absolutely until next time this podcast is a part of the c-suite radio network for more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.